Hello and welcome to the Jazz Jam Podcast. I'm your host, Dwayne Gunnels, joined by my co-host, Max Levy. And on today's episode, we're going to be getting into a newer album by Emmanuel Wilkins, his second Blue Note release entitled The Seventh Hand, which was released back in January of this year. So pretty excited to see what Emmanuel Wilkins has in store for us. He's an up-and-coming younger cat. So yeah, I'm excited to, to get into it. But before we get into it, Instead of doing really a jazz question of the week, I figured we'd switch it up a little bit and we're going to hit Max with a jazz questions of the week and do a jazz trivia quiz for Max this week. Max, how are you feeling about this this quiz I'm about to hit you with? I'm really scared. I'm going to look like a dummy, um, but I'm ready and it'll probably be some interesting questions and it'll probably cover a lot of different topics all at once. So I'm kind of excited, but at the same time anxious and um, worried I will not look so great. I, I have faith in you. I think you're going to get, if you get more than half of them, that's got to be like a success, I feel like. Unless it were like jazz history class, then that would not be good. But let's go ahead and, and get right into it with the first question. Are you ready, Max? As ready as I can possibly be. They are multiple choice, so that's got to help. All right. Thank God. The first question is, the famous Bill Evans Trio's live recording that produced Sunday at the Village Vanguard and Waltz for Debbie was recorded in what year? 1960, 1961, 1959, or 1962? Well, I'm not a huge listener of the great Bill Evans. I should listen to more of them, and this will remind me to do so. Uh, <laughs> so I'm going to go with... Um, These are also close together, too. They are, and that's also why it's a hard question because a lot of great records came out during that time um i'm gonna go in 1961 okay that sounds pretty good i guess i don't know the answer to these so i could try to help you i i was thinking 19 somewhere i don't they're all so close i don't, i was thinking 59 but i don't actually have well it. i yeah that's a good guess but in 59 a lot of great records came out including blue train or sorry not blue train uh giant steps and um just a there's a and to and um dave brubeck's timeout great yeah timeout great yeah. just a lot of records came out in that year and i don't remember you know reading anything about bill evans's waltz for debbie during that specific year but i could be completely off base all right well we're gonna go with 1961 the second question this is a good one what is the best selling jazz album of all time Take five, a love supreme, headhunters, or kind of blue. Take okay, five is well, not the name of the album, is it? No. So the the best selling album is kind of blue, but the best selling single is take is five. Take five. Okay. Kinda, so I'm kind of blue is is your kind of blue is the best selling jazz album, and so if they're saying the best album, then it is kind of blue. But it is a trick question because Take Five is a that's the only one single. that's a song. Yeah, okay, but yeah, it says album, so that's what we're going with. All right, question number three: There have been three. This one's tough. There have been three famous jazz musicians with the name Bill Evans. Two of them, piano and sax, kept their name. What did the third Bill Evans change his name to? Shadow Wilson, Uran Israel. Yusuf Latif or Matume? Those are all great players, and I know those players by those names. I don't know which one was Bill Evans. I'm going to go with 
Uh, I'm going to go with Youssef Latif. For some reason, that was like the one, but that's just because I know him the best. But yeah. and Shadow Shadow Wilson is a great drummer, but I don't I don't know if he had a different name than that. Um. Anyway, what's the next question? This one, you if you don't get this one, we're I'm, the podcast is over. Sorry to everyone listening. This is the end. Um, oh no! <laughs> by what nickname was Ben Webster known? Rabbit. The brute. Okay. Okay. I didn't even. Okay. There we go. That was uh. Well, that was the fourth option, but yes, okay. That one I don't even have to hear the multiple choice uh, que- answers to pick from. The so. podcast is safe, everyone. Max got that one with no, no, no questions asked. Okay, the fifth question: Although he made his fame and fortune in New York City, where was Duke Ellington born and raised? Chicago, New Orleans, St. Louis, or Washington D.C.? Washington D.C. Mm, okay, well, Max sounded confident now. I know that one. I think. All right. Um, Paul Desmond, the alto player who played in Dave Brubeck's band for many years, had an agreement with his boss that prevented him from doing what on any of his solo albums. And the um, it's record the song Take Five on his albums, have a piano player on his albums, play any songs written by Dave Brubeck, or play any classical music written by German composers on this album. I'm I'm guessing it's either A or C. Um take 5 or do yeah, songs. It has to be one of those two. I'm going to go with A. Take 5. Yes, but I could be way off base. I I don't I've know. I've never heard another Paul Desmond Take 5 recording. Right, that's where I'm going with that. Uh, that's my logic on that one. So I'm going to guess A. Okay, here's another one that I feel like you should get. Um, question number seven. In the late 50s, early 60s, Art Blakey's Jazz Messengers with Lee Morgan, Bobby Timmons, and Jamie Merritt had a host of tenor sax players who sat in, with some of them only sticking around for one or two albums. Which of the following tenor players was never in the Jazz Messengers? Wayne Shorter, Hank Mobley, Benny Golson, or Joe Henderson? Joe Henderson. Yeah, that's definitely the correct answer there. Okay. I would have gotten that one. Um, what jazz movie starred a host of great jazz musicians, including Dexter Gordon, Herbie Hancock, Bobby Hutcherson, John McLaughlin, and Wayne Shorter? The Cotton Club, Bird, Round Midnight, Lady Sings the Blues. Well, I know Dexter was in the film Round Midnight. Um, so I'm, I'm going to go with Round Midnight. Okay. I think that's right as well. Oh, Max, it might be. All right. The late great bass player Ray Brown, love him. Uh, he's going to be on our next album, um, just a hint. Was once Uh-oh. married to which of the following jazz singers? Billie Holiday, Betty Carter, Sarah Vaughn, or Ella Fitzgerald? He was married for a short time to Ella Fitzgerald. Oh, I actually didn't know that. I'm pretty sure, yeah. Okay. Uh, which of the following, this is the last question. Max has kind of sped through these, so we'll have to see how uh, how accurate he is here. So, yeah. which of the following jazz labels did Lester Koenig found? Contemporary, Candid, Prestige, or Riverside? Well, it's not Prestige. Um, that was from a guy named Weinstock. Um, could you repeat those for me one more time? Yeah. Contemporary, Candid, Prestige, or Riverside? I mean, to me, the other big album label record label from those other than prestige is is riverside i don't um, even r- recognize the other two 
I've heard of Candid, but I don't really know it. And in contemporary, I, I I don't I don't know that name. It may have switched names before or or since, but I'm gonna guess Riverside just because I know that labeled name, and maybe um, that's what it is. So my answer for that is Riverside Records. All right, so Riverside Records. All right, so let's see how many out of 10 Max got right. We'll go over the answers just really quickly. All right, wow. What'd I get? You got 8 out of 10. Okay, 80%. That's not terrible. That's really good. So the first one, the Bill Evans recording with uh, Sunday at Village Vanguard and Waltz for Debbie was in 1961. Okay, that was a a guess, and I mean somewhat educated guess because I didn't think it was it was fifties, but that was uh, just kind of lucky. Wow, uh, the best selling jazz album of all time, obviously, kind of blue. Bill Evans, Yusuf Yusuf Latif, that is that's so crazy. Okay. Yeah, that was. I mean that that's a good guess, and um, I guess we're right on that one. Wow, yeah, there's some debate as to. Latif's real name. It may have been Bill Huddleston, but he went by the name Bill Evans. That's crazy. Okay. Huh, the, the more br- you know. The brute is obviously Ben Webster. Yep. Uh, Duke Ellington was born and raised in Washington, D.C. Oh, this is interesting. Paul Desmond, the alto player in du- Dave Brubeck's band for many years, had an agreement with his boss that prevented him from doing uh, what on any of his solo albums. It was not play the song Take 5. It was have a piano player on his albums. Really? Yeah. That is kind of, wow, that's um, surprising. The, uh, yeah, the thing, that only 20% of people got that right. The thing here says it's impossible to imagine why Paul would make this agreement. Yeah, I mean, you could use a, a great guitar player, and, and I think that's probably what he did. Maybe Jim Hall or somebody. Um comes to mind of of who he probably played with but yeah you would just substitute piano for guitar dang all right and uh the jazz messengers question obviously it's joe henderson all of um the other guys what wayne shorter hank mobley and who was the last benny Benny golson yeah those were obviously members of the jazz messengers um Oh, here it is. Okay. Uh, which jazz movie starred a host of great jazz musicians? That one is Round Midnight. Max knew that Dexter Gordon was in that one, so that's probably a, a giveaway there. Um, Ray Brown was married to Ella Fitzgerald. Good one there. And then Lester, this is the second one you got wrong. Um, it wasn't Riverside. It was Contemporary, which was an L.A.-based label, um, which recorded musicians such as Art Pepper, Hampton Hawes, and Shelley Mann. Okay, a lot of West Coast cats. Yeah. Um, okay, I didn't know that that last one. Um, That's good really good. Eight out of ten. That was solid. You we yeah. got you got some right that you weren't really sure about either with the the Bill Evans both Bill Evans questions. Yeah, I need to check out a lot more Bill Evans. Um, but I I mean they were educated guesses and and I I I think I guessed well and uh, I I enjoyed that. We should do more trivia in the future. Yeah, we'll definitely do it. Maybe uh, next time uh, we can have me do a trivia. That I will not go eight for ten. I promise you that much. <laughs> um, but that was good. Max's Max's jazz history is apparently on point. But speaking of history, let's get into the history for the album that we're getting into this week, uh, the Seventh Hand. There's not really a whole lot of history um, to speak of 
Um, it's kind of been described as it explores relationships between the presence and nothingness across an hour-long suite comprised of seven movements. So it's kind of meant to be thought of as movements or uh, like a suite instead of like songs specifically, which is kind of a more classical approach to music than maybe um, the you know fundamental jazz approach, which would be songs. So. Yeah, um, let's get into some of the the personnel on on the album. So, Max, why don't you start us out with Emmanuel Wilkins, and then we'll get into some of the other the other players on the album. Yeah, Emmanuel Wilkins is is the alto player on this. He was born in 1998, so he's younger than either you or I, Dwayne. Um, we got to step it up. Andy's on Blue Note. <laughs> <laughs> I know. What are we doing? Um, he's a Philly guy. Grew up in Philly. First played in in the church. He studied at Juilliard. Uh, learned from the greats like Steve Wilson, Joe Temperley, and the Bruce Williams. He's also worked with Jason Moran, Gerald Clayton, Solange, Wynton Marsalis, and many others. And his recording leadership album debut as a you know as a leader on the on the hit was in 2020 from uh, also Blue Note Records entitled Omega, which I also listened to, and we may go over at some time in the future, but he's kind of very, you know, new on the scene and he has his own thing and he's worked with a lot of great, great musicians and he's getting around. And so I think it's good that we're, we're doing an Emmanuel Wilkins album. Yeah. And that Omega album really like put him on the map. That one was really like uh, critically revered. And so that's kind of why this release was so highly anticipated from him um with it bling on blue note you know newer blue note stuff him being young and omega kind of getting the the praise that it did so well let's get into i'm gonna get into micah thomas who's the piano player on the album he was born in 1997 so all these cats i think are younger than we are so they're all in their mid-20s really quite young Um, He was born in Columbus, Ohio, and he started playing the piano by the age of two, which is insane. And he began gigging during his sophomore year of high school, which kind of reminds me of of us a little bit. That's kind of, you know, we started to get into it when we were in high school. Absolutely. he also went to Juilliard, so I guess that's where he met Emmanuel Wilkins, probably safe to say. He's performed with J.D. Allen, John Clayton, Billy Drummond, Stacey Diller, Joel Ross, and he tours as a leader of a trio, and um, but most notably, he's part of the Emmanuel Wilkins Quartet. Yep, yep. A real another up and comer who's got his own thing going on, but you know he can kind of do it all. And you can hear him pretty well represented on this album. And we'll talk a lot more about him as we go on. Yeah. So let's get into the bass player, uh, Daryl Johns. He was born in the Bronx in the late '90s, so another young cat. Um, a musical family, drum, uh, drummer Steve Johns and saxophonist uh, Debbie Keefe. He started playing at a young age and were awarded an honorable mention as a semi-finalist by the Thelonious Monk Institute during the 2009 Monk Institute Bass Competition. We spoke about Helen Sung, who won an award from the same institute. She was on the T.S. Monk uh, album, so definitely go check out that episode and that album it's really good and she's an incredible player so um a fellow uh monk institute semi-finalist so but by the end of 2010 he was recording in the rudy van gelder studio um performed with wallace ronnie steve wilson billy hart christian sands and some others as well and then yeah 
he, he's an interesting guy because he very early on in at a young age um you know he was like 11 12 13 being in the recording studio with Rudy Van Gelder. And so that's just kind of amazing to think about. <laughs> yeah. Um, I don't know. All these guys really young. And then the drummer you were getting to is Kwiku Sumbri, who originally comes from Washington, D.C., born in the late 90s. He's a multi-instrumentalist. All things percussion is what he does. He's known for playing the djembe, the drum set, West African percussion instruments as well. He's traveled the world and has performed with many, many different players, including Solange Knowles, Cyrus Chestnut, Reggie Workman, Ambrose, I can never pronounce his last name, Ambrose Akinmuser. Do you know how to pronounce his yeah, name? Yeah, Akinmuser, I think. Akinmuser, yeah. yeah. So, And a couple of the other guys we mentioned also have performed with Ambrose as well. So yeah, and then a, that's a cool list of uh of people, uh, Cyrus Chestnut, Reggie Workman, absolutely. And then a a neat aspect to this album is there are a couple of of um movements or tunes that feature the flute from flutist Elena Penderhughes, who's originally from the Bay Area, San Francisco, California, and she started playing flute and also singing by the age of seven. And around the age of 11, she was already making waves in the music scene, being featured in an HBO special on young musicians. And since then, she's won many awards, played at Carnegie Hall, the White House, Monterey Jazz Festival, and has also performed with greats like Herbie Hancock, Kenny Barron, Christian Scott, and Future. Yeah, she's really, um, really talented. She comes from a musical family. Her brother, Samora Pinderhughes, is a jazz pianist. And he's really good as well. We could get into, um, he's got some cool albums out as well. And I think their father played as well. So a musical family, she's most notable for playing with Christian Scott. Um, she plays with him a lot and she tours with Herbie Hancock and played on Herbie's uh, newest album. She was on that as well. So she definitely is one of the the most well-known jazz flautist um, currently. So cool to see her on this album with Emmanuel Wilkins. But cool, let's get into the actual album itself. Um, the first track on the album is entitled Emanation. Max, why don't you start out by telling us a little bit about this track? I think this track is a is overall a, a great representation of the approach and the uh, musical emphasis, you know, the, the musical things that Emmanuel Wilkins wants to emphasize in this album. I think this is overall just a great representation of everything he's putting into it musically. Um, and at the beginning, it's kind of hard for me to hear what the time signature is. They're really kind of playfully messing, messing around with the time and the drums are, are doing a lot. But it's kind of cool to listen for that. Could you tell what the time signature was in that beginning section? Not really. You can feel the like... There's an eighth note like pulse, but you can't really feel where it's divided, in my opinion. But you can feel that there is a pulse. You just it's hard to tell what how it's divided or what, you know, what comprises a, a measure of music. Yeah, I tried to group it in seven or nine, and it was almost that, but it not could be quite. mixed as well, too. I not that's what I think it is. I think it's it's mixed meter. Yeah. Um, it doesn't quite feel structured enough to really for us to be able to count it, you know, those guys obviously know what's going on, but it's hard because there's not really a succinct melody. So it's hard to really like be like, okay, this is beat one, you know, for sure. 
Um, right. So it, right. It, it does get kind of hard to count it. And there is kind of a melody outlined um, from Emmanuel on the alto sax. It's, I would say it's, you know, it's kind of based on large intervallic movement. It's almost jumpy at certain moments. And then right at the one minute mark, it sounds like he's he's improvising and we're getting into into real solos. I love the drums. And to me on this track, the drums shine kind of throughout and, and really make everything really interesting. I'm not sure if I dig everything else that's going on. Uh, at certain moments, the piano seems a little too heavy and the saxophone sound is very, very light. Um, and I'm not trying to dig at Emmanuel Wilkins. I just think at moments... His his sound and his tone is just a little too light in regards to everything else that's going on. Yeah, and I think one thing that Emmanuel does is he he is unique in his style and his approach. And I think he's going for something here with the spiritual aspect. And we've talked about how he wants this to be an hour-long suite, not really individual tracks. So there definitely is a different approach that he's taking to this album. And I can appreciate that he's sticking to that. But I agree with Max. Um, one thing, like a problem that I kind of have with this song is it just seems really busy and kind of a theme throughout this album that I just feel like there's a little bit of a lack of direction. Um, like you said, the solo starts at a minute and it just kind of runs and runs. He like has a lot of runs. There's not a whole lot of space or really different like rhythmic ideas. It's just kind of runs on top of runs. And he's good. He's killing, you know, but it just feels like it's it's busy. And I agree with Max. Um there's a piano solo as well, and it's kind of a lot of sweeping runs as well. I agree with Max that I really do like what the drums and even the basses are doing throughout the track. Um, and there are a couple cool things that the piano player does that I, I do like. There's some cool like modal left hand ideas, which there's kind of a lot of hints at like modalism and like kind of some avant garde freer jazz things. Uh, he does that at like 407 to 422. And then there's some pretty cool like chromatic movement from 435 to to 440. And I think as the piano solo goes, it actually starts to develop and swing a little bit more. And it gets a little bit more interesting to me as it goes on. Yeah, absolutely. And I was just going to say the saxophone sound does get a little heavier and, and, and darker and deeper as he goes on in his solo. And you're right. It is kind of constant eighth notes, constant 16th notes. There's some... Obvious influences from Ornette Coleman, maybe Eric Dolphy um, in his solo, but it kind of drones on and I kind of lose focus until later on in the piano solo where we get an actual swing section. And so they actually do swing on this track emanation right around the five minute mark, 520 mark, and um, you get some actual quarter note walking from the bass at 545. I really dig. And so that kind of five minute to six minute mark, I really do like. Yeah, I definitely agree with you there. Um, I think that as the song kind of goes on, it starts to make a little bit more sense to me. The beginning seems a little bit busy to me and there's just kind of a lot going on and it doesn't seem really succinct and the melody doesn't seem like super clear or succinct. It's being played by Emmanuel Wilkins, like Max said. But then when the sax comes back in with the melody, they kind of bring the dynamics down and then the melody on the way out seems like much more succinct to me than on the way in. It's, it kind of makes sense and it speaks to me a little bit more um, on the way out and I really in, I enjoyed this the tune the way that it ended but it just kind of questioned the 
kind of the lack of clarity at the beginning of of the track for me. I think that's a good point. Yeah, the sax comes back in with that melodic idea right around 6.30 mark. Um, And I do like the dynamic movement downward. You know, it's very musical. And then right after that, it goes right into the next track on the album called Don't Break. And so you'll notice if you listen to it that it's meant to be listened to almost succinctly one track right after another. Um, Or you can listen to it separately. Um, with with a lot of them, I think there's one or two where you really can't, <laughs> um, or it doesn't work as well. But um, here he goes right into the next track called "Don't Break," and this to me, there is a really nice melody laid out by Wilkins on the horn, um, and this kind of speaks out just a little bit more to me melodically. And then we get a percussion ensemble pretty quickly right at the 15 second mark and there's some call and response from the keys and the saxophone that i really dig and then the two kind of play melodically together and then they go back and forth what did you think about all that yeah i really like what the what the band is doing and what the percussion ensemble is doing for me it when the percussion ensemble it doesn't necessarily like always feel like it fits but i like individually what's going on and so i like what the sax and the piano are doing, that call and response is really cool. But then around the two-minute mark, they start to feature the percussion ensemble more, and I like when they do that, and it turns into just a solo percussion ensemble, and I really like uh, that they do this feature. It just kind of feels... It's interesting how they chose to to kind of overlap the two, the two things. I think you're right. It doesn't necessarily match together as well as maybe they... Uh, they intended to me it, it's the percussion ensemble and then the jazz quartet it's not as um, connected musically or doesn't fit as well right around that two minute mark like you you alluded to that's where you start to hear like the percussion ensemble is just taking over and everything else that's going on doesn't fit in um, I, I don't understand. I think the percussion ensemble is included for a number of reasons. One, it alludes to, you know, great African drumming and African culture and a lot of musical influence, you know, from Africa that Emmanuel Wilkins wants to portray in his music. And number two, I think Kwiku, the drummer on the album, plays with this uh, particular percussion ensemble. So, you know, Kwiku probably said, let's let's add these guys in. They're a group I play with. It'd be kind of fun. It would be musical to do an ode to Africa. But it doesn't, to me, it doesn't work musically as well as I think it was intended to. And that's clear to me the last, you know, two minutes of it. Yeah, it feels like there's kind of more of an emphasis on this free-spiritedness and this spirituality, like, that's kind of, more emphasize than necessarily like the music and the feel of the music itself. And so I, in my opinion, like I like what's going on in, with the band and with the percussion, but in I, it, to me, it would have made more sense if it would have started with the band and then somehow transitioned into the percussion, not just kind of starts with the band and then just throw the percussion on top of it. And they're kind of playing, it almost sounds like two different songs at once, kind of just both playing their own thing. And then it's just percussion. It would have made more sense to me if you just kind of started with the band and then found a way to transition into the, the, that kind of West African drumming percussive thing. Cause I really do like both elements of the song. And I think the, 
the that drum group sounds really good and i enjoyed listening to that yeah i i agree 100 percent. it sounds like two different songs going on at the same time unfortunately um but it you know there's a lot of musical elements in there and i i dig the percussion ensemble and again i appreciate the the ode to african music influence in in not only western music but obviously you know it influences emmanuel wilkins so i I'm glad that it's there, but I think it could have been done just a little bit better. Um, and then the next song on the album is called Fugitive Ritual Sela or Sela? Sela, yeah. Sela. And this is kind of meant to be a hymn in uh, an ode to black spaces, as Emmanuel Wilkins puts it. I think he was thinking of the black church and just a lot of, um, I don't know, societal areas where. Um, a lot of black Americans congregate and, and are allowed to be themselves. And so this is kind of an ode to that. And Selah means pause or giving space for the Holy Spirit. And so he's he's kind of mixing in elements of the black church and um, really just kind of exploring things related to areas where, you know, black Americans can can really feel the, the Holy Spirit and, and be amongst themselves and um go from there so i i kind of i kind of dig that and this this one i think is also the most listened to track on spotify from the album yeah by far it's the most listened to track i actually this is the track on the album that i've listened to the most and i actually have it in a few of like playlists that i have and stuff um so i really do enjoy this track uh there's a really nice bass intro that happens and then there's um some nice accompaniment that happens from the keys and then I just like this melody a lot. This melody is just, it's, uh, there's a good use of space. Um, the band is playing together well during the melody. And it just feels like this track to me is so much more clear with its intentions than the prior two tracks. Like I really understand what Emmanuel Wilkins is getting at with this track. Yes. And also the time is clearer. You know, we're kind of in 6-8 time. It's also a nice bass feature. Uh Overall, it's kind of a lighter touch, and there's a lot of spiritual undertones I can get the sense of with with this particular track. The sax is in right around the 30-second mark. The melody is very nice, and I think Wilkins' sound here kind of combines classical saxophone sound with some elements of smooth jazz sound. Um, so it's a very unique sound and tone he's producing on the instrument. It's not really my style. I, I don't really dig it. I don't think it, you know, follows a lot of the sort of traditional saxophone sound that we're used to hearing in in the usual way, but I applaud him for it for him doing it and it's his unique thing. I just get I don't know, some at some moments I get classical saxophone coming to my mind when I listen to him and I don't really understand that. But I, I appreciate it, it for it, you know, being different and he's doing his thing. I just don't really dig it at moments. Yeah, I think the one thing with this track um, is that there's not really an actual saxophone solo, which kind of stands out to me because it feels like this is a track where you could have a really nice and saxophone solo and it would fit the spiritual feeling of the album to have a saxophone solo and let Emmanuel Wilkins kind of shine. But to me, the only thing that's kind of even a semblance of improvisation on this would be um, 
Sumbri on on the drums and he kind of you know gets into some different grooves and stuff and on this one he's the one who's really standing out to me and kind of shines above above the rest i think the drumming is really what keeps uh this track interesting and what keeps me interested while i'm listening to the track because it seems like they just kind of you know go through the melody um kind of repeatedly there's not really a change in the melodic ideas there's no saxophone solo, which I was, you know, speaking of. So yeah, I think um, Sumbri really does stand out to me, and yeah, I think like I really this is a nice tune and it's well written, but I just it kind of boggles my mind that there is no sax solo. It's just like like Max said, it is jazz, but like there's like it's lacking some of the foundations of jazz. Um, so I just I yeah I question. It kind of feels a little bit more um like theatrical to me like it's almost like a soundtrack rather than what you'd expect from a jazz recording which i i get what he's going for but um i question some of you know the the foundational um stuff that's going on with it i think you're hitting a lot of great different points that i would concur with i mean number one being there are a lot of moments on this album that are improvised and there's a lot of collective improvisation, especially later on in the album. Um, and so I do question why on this track would you have no solo at all when sometimes in the other tracks you have too much soloing, if there's such a thing, I, you know, I don't want to go there or well, I don't we wanna, will um, get into lift. So we, can... yeah, <laughs> right. We're going to go there. Uh, but I don't want to, you know, be offensive or anything. I just, uh, it is kind of, you said mind boggling. It's not necessarily mind boggling, but it is a, it is a moment I questioned. And I, I, I do wonder why there are some classic jazz recordings where there were, where there were not really solos or not many solos. Um, you know, if you hear like Ben Webster, uh, he recorded the tune. That's all, which is a ballad. And he just kind of plays through the form one and a half times and he does like a little cadenza, but there's no real solo, mm-hmm. real saxophone solo. And there's some moments of that throughout jazz history. Eddie Lockjaw Davis also did some kind of more pop-oriented records with Shirley Scott, where there's not much soloing, or they only do two times through the form or something. So there's those kind of moments in jazz history where there's not much soloing, but everything else is there. The soul, the way you treat melody, the swing, um, uh, you know, the different... Uh, feels you can do bossa nova versus versus swing and, and and so forth and so on but and usually there's like little moments of solo but here it's kind of just melody and a lot of playful rhythm section um comping going on which is interesting and and overall it's a nice relaxed feel but yeah it is questionable yeah and i think one thing that's important to note is that the lack of solo, like I'm, this is a great, this is still a well-written tune and a good tune. I think that's a personal preference thing for me. And for me, I question why there isn't a solo, but it's not to say that it isn't a good tune. This is, I really enjoy listening to this tune. I just feel like I personally could get more out of this tune. I want to hear Emmanuel Wilkins solo. I just, I, you know, I want to hear what he could do with this tune. And I have one more point to make on that, which is Ben Webster could get away with not playing a, a real solo because his sound and his treatment of the melody was so beautiful and so touching. And he, he does different embellishments and um, there's, there's so much emotion in the melody that he's playing that 
I'm not missing something if he decides not to take a solo section. Whereas in this case, I'm not getting as much from Emmanuel Wilkins's sound or I don't dig it as much or he's not doing enough um, variations on the melody or on his sound in general. So to me, that's why I'm missing a solo is because I kind of want more from Wilkins somewhere, even on the melody, if, if that's all he's giving. Yeah, um, I think that kind of goes back to what I was saying that at a certain point, it's Sumbri that kind of captivates your attention and what he's doing. Not to say that yep. Emmanuel Wilkins is disinteresting, but I think at a certain point, that's what you're going to latch onto because that's what's kind of developing and you kind of hear the kind of playfulness in the rhythm section that's going on. And so I agree with what Max is saying there. I would like if there was, if Emmanuel was featured more and the rhythm section could kind of do that playfulness behind an Emmanuel Wilkins solo. I think that would be really hip. Yeah. All right. Let's move on to the next track entitled Shadow. Um, and in this instance, the melody starts right away on Shadow. And it's kind of a four bar idea. I think it's repeated six times or so, maybe maybe six, seven, eight times. Um, but it's quite, quite a quite a few times. And the sax solo, it's not it, it there's a gotcha moment. Yeah, where he he's <laughs> where right after he does that melody six or eight times, he starts playing some lower notes on the horn. And I was kind of digging that. And then he goes right back into the head. So it was a teaser. And I, I was like, oh, something different with his sound. And he's pulling from low notes and it's OK. He's going to start low and go high. But no, he goes right back into the melody. And um, later he does do a solo right around 228. And um, there's a lot to talk about in that solo. What did you think about that moment where he kind of, it was a trick and he does the head again after taking, you know, four bars of, of some low notes and, and moving around a little bit? Yeah, I was definitely in my notes. I was tricked as well. I do like the repeated um, ideas in the melody. I like that. I think that's hip. Um, I enjoy that, that repeated melody. And yeah, I started writing notes on his solo. I was like, oh, his tone is light as he starts the solo at 122. And I said, what I thought was his solo just turns into them playing the melody some more at 146. So yeah, yeah, um, it's interesting. I don't know. Um, I It's not terrible. I could take it or leave it. Um, it doesn't really bother me. But it just kind of feels like this song... One thing I wrote is that they kind of, he does take an actual solo at 228 and then eventually kind of just goes back into them playing the melody. And it's obvious that Wilkins is very talented and has a good understanding of the language. It just, to me, it feels like there's a bit of a hesitance to write the songs in a manner that would showcase that. And so this tune seems to be more focused on the melodies themselves than it would be on, like Max and I said, showcasing like Emmanuel Wilkins abilities which i guess i don't i that's what they're that's the style that they're going for but there is a bit of a saxophone so on this i just i don't know it feels like there's a bit of a hesitance for emmanuel wilkins to showcase his his saxophone playing i think that's a good point i i will say this little solo is kind of dynamic to me there's some nice interplay between the keys and the saxophone and he gets a little busier right around 302 starts doing some actual solo techniques and then back at 312 or so, he kind of plays the head lick idea. And then the piano solo kind of starts. So there's a little, uh, there's, there's little short solos in here. Um, but you're right. Overall, 
he's emphasizing the melody and textures and and sounds and and the the presence of hopefully some sort of spirituality and everything that they're doing and then later on the bass comes out to me a little bit more right around that 340 mark yeah i agree and i think the rhythm section um there's definitely some interesting things especially with uh the bass player and and sombre on the drums there's definitely a lot of stuff that that keeps this interesting i think sombre kind of is what he keeps my attention for most of the album so there definitely is some cool uh rhythm section stuff going on throughout the album and then i think i heard one or two almost blues licks or <laughs> blues ideas <laughs> um from emmanuel wilkins a little later on around 352 they're very short but it sounds almost like blues a little bit from what he's playing and i just felt like a sense of relief like finally something reminiscent of <laughs> of uh of a blues idea um and so i really like that moment and then they kind of repeat the head to finish out onto a final chord and there's no added licks on top from a, from the sax player which kind of made me you know <laughs> I, I i wanted some some little added licks there but uh but it, it's kind of cool how they end and overall it's a nice feel it's nice and light at some moments i do think again wilkins's sound is just a little too light almost wispy at times and i i don't understand that yeah i definitely can understand what you're saying there i just yeah it, it feels like there's just a slight i mean that is his style and that's his sound but it just feels like there's kind of a slight hesitance to let go and just kind of you know like let themselves shine and let you know let loose a little bit but they're sticking to the feel of the album this kind of spiritual um ideas that's going on so let's get into the fifth track on the album which is entitled witness um there's a very short piano intro on this one um and then this is the first time we get elena Penderhues. and so the melody is like like i said it's like has this three theatrical feel to it almost sounds like something that you'd hear in a soundtrack and um there's this it's in uh three four and it's all dotted half note movement so it's all taking up the entire measure with the rhythm section and then you get elena Penderhues playing over that and i think what elena Penderhues is playing is some of the most interesting soloing probably the most interesting soloing we've had thus far on the album um so there's some really cool ideas from her absolutely yeah to me on this track elena Penderhues pretty much is the thing to listen to overall i i kind of I kind of like the nice piano start, uh, but to me, uh, this is another moment that screams classical music to me. And I'm not saying mm -hmm. that's, that's not necessarily, you know, that's not a bad thing uh, or something to shy away from. It is a little unexpected and I, I don't know. It's just one of those moments that I question are where in the world of jazz are we? Um, I don't know. I, uh, this, this particular track entitled, uh, witness just, I don't there, obviously there's some improvisation. The flute really shines, um, later on has some nice soloing. So obviously that's jazz oriented and the overall, um, treatment of the instrumentation and, and the way the instruments are interacting with each other. That's jazz. I just get a lot of sort of classical influence on this track. I completely agree with you, Max. One thing I said is I actually, I like this track and I like the music, 
but it feels like it's it belongs more so on a soundtrack than a jazz album to me. It sounds something that would be performed in more of like a a classical setting or on a movie or in a you know like it's setting the scene for something. It doesn't it just doesn't quite feel like it is fully jazz. And I'm not saying that it's not jazz because like Max said it has so many jazz elements and the players are all incredible players and they're jazz players. It just this the composition feel a little bit different than what you'd expect. And I I respect Emmanuel Wilkins for wanting to tap into that, but to me it just I don't feel like my attention has fully been captured as I'm listening to what I want to like on a jazz recording, a blue note recording. I just don't feel like my attention's been fully captured in that way. Right. Uh, I will say there are two things I really like about this track. Number one, we do get some nice flute playing and some nice flute vibrato towards the end. So there's some vibrato I, I dig. You know, that's kind of my thing. <laughs> um, and I do like how the saxophone is just sticking to dotted uh, half notes and the flutes on top. And then the next track on the album, they switch it. Mm-hmm. to where the, the flute's kind of playing a melody and the saxophone's improvising on top. So I like that kind of juxtaposition of the two horns on the on the track. Um, and overall, I think it's kind of cool, just overall the, the feeling I'm getting from the song. I, a lot of things came to my mind. It seemed somewhat ominous, and it was it's kind of always moving, but it's moving very slowly. And there's not as much development as I would desire, but it seems like I get the sense like I'm in a moment where I'm getting both Halloween and Easter at the same exact time. <laughs> that's that's a that's a cool way to describe it. And I do agree with that. And that's kind of why it gives me like a soundtrack vibe is because it's like the sound, like it sounds good. And like it does like kind of give you those feelings. And I think that is what you said. One thing there is one thing I want to touch on is that just feels like there's a bit of a lack of development. Like if this song had more development to it, I think I would enjoy it a little more. But it feels like it kind of, with the dotted quarter notes, they the rhythm section of the saxophone, they stay on that the entire time. There's a change in timbre towards the end, and it does change a little bit dynamically towards the end, but it just doesn't feel like it's really going anywhere. Um, so while I think it's a nice song and it's it sounds nice, the melody's nice, the um flute playing is really nice i just i question like where is this going you know it reminds me of purgatory <laughs> you're not, <laughs> you're not, you don't know where you're going yeah and you're just kind of stuck and i i hate to say it like that but but maybe that's, that's what, what they're going for because there is a true. spiritual you know like maybe that's the point and so if that is the point, that's well done because we're questioning where are we going? And if it's not, you know, so, <laughs> right. so I, I do that. That's how I feel about it, but it could be intentional. And there are times we listened to Induzu Makatini and there were things that I questioned there, but after listening, it kind of things started to make more sense. So there are times where we might not personally like something, but it might be what the artist is going for. And that's why we feel that way. Absolutely. It just might not be a decision that we would make if we were, you know, writing the tune. Right. And and this track is kind of related, like I mentioned earlier, to the next track called Lighthouse. And here, you know, they're treating the two instruments the opposite, um, the two horns the opposite way on this one, where the flute is kind of more basic or doing a, a melody and the saxophone is kind of riffing and layering um, 
improvisations on top of the flute. So I, I like that. And also with Lighthouse, there's I like this intro a lot where the solo piano starts and then you layer in the rhythm section and then the horns come in last. So it's a little more of a dynamic intro than um, the previous track, Witness. Yeah, I think, yeah, this definitely, there is some more development here and there is some more, like Max said, the layering is cool. Um, and this time, like Max said, there's a flute melody and you get the saxophone improvising over it. And then the melody at about the 56 second mark, it kind of turns into a free jazz solo section. And so the piano drops out at like 120 and it's this is very Ornette Coleman-esque to me. Um so I definitely get what they're going for and the influences here, which is that kind of free jazz uh, feel. Yeah, and as it goes on, the sax gets a little heavier and there's kind of more chutzpah <laughs> behind everything he's doing. Um, then it kind of just suddenly drops in intensity uh, around the 250 mark, um, you know, the end of the two-minute into the three-minute mark. I, I don't know. I, I wanted kind of a longer dramatic decrescendo did you notice that what were you thinking yeah i would just want to point out that i'm not like a huge free jazz person but i do appreciate it for what it is and i think that this section of this album and this solo is actually really well done for what they're trying to accomplish um so i really actually do like wilkins sax playing and what he's showcasing here we're actually getting some of his personality here and starting to hear him shine which is kind of what i've been wanting I, you know, I'm, I'll appreciate your approach to the music, but as, as a jazz musician, I want to hear what you have to offer when you're playing on a jazz album. So I do appreciate that he's showcasing his playing more so on this track, but it's like the second to last track on the entire album. I've been kind of waiting for him to do this, but yeah, I do. I do get what you're saying um, with the, like the kind of quick uh, decrease in dynamics there. Yeah. And, and you're right. That free jazz section is is more interesting to listen to i really dig you mentioned it um when the piano cuts out and it's just sax interplaying with with the drums and, and a little bit of the bass and that's to me that's reminiscent of like kenny garrett on alto with i think jeff tane watts on drums you know mm -hmm. they're going they're going at it back and forth so that's kind of a moment where i'm like okay and that's I, really musical yeah and that's it's very real. jazz influenced. It's not, you know, yep. it, it's more free jazz influenced or avant-garde, but it is, that's really nice and really musical there. So I, I really want to give props to that section. I enjoyed that a lot. Yeah. And then right after, you know, the flute enters with kind of longer held out notes, what we call goose eggs. Um, Cause on the sheet music, you know, it's just a whole note. It kind of <laughs> looks like a goose egg. Um, so, so that's kind of cool. It's a different texture that, that, you know, um, that really kind of opens up what's what's going on and, and changes the feel a little bit. And by the three minute mark, it's much lighter, and it just seems a little a little too different to me than what came before it. It's just like all of a sudden we're in a different place, in, musically speaking. Um, and then there's a nice melody established. The drums get a little busier, and they move uh, kind of into a solo on top of the melody. Again, that's played by the Saxon keys. Yeah, I really enjoy this section. Um, yeah, they do get into a more melodic kind of feel, but I really do enjoy the drum feature on this. And 
it's kind of busy, but it's very grooving and it's very in the pocket, which is it's so this track is is definitely catching my interest more than and there's a lot more. You'll notice we have a lot more to say about this track because musically there's a lot more catching, piquing our interest than, you know, maybe some of the the tracks previous. Absolutely. The drums do shine here again. Kwiku is killing it. There's lots of snare drum I'm hearing right around 418. It's very driving, kind of busy. Um, there's some nice, really rhythmic hits around the 440 mark by Kwiku. At certain moments, it seems chaotic, but it's always grooving, like you were saying. Um, so it's always something that makes me feel interested, and and I'm and I'm in the in the music, listening to what Kwiku is doing, almost throughout the whole solo. You know, I'm really enamored, and it's more musically interesting and dynamic here. Um, and it also sounds like the piano and the drums are soloing at the same time at certain moments. So there's another moment of collective improv that is kind of, you know, is definitely jazz oriented. And, and so I like that. Um, and then there's lots of cymbals and, and percussion playing after the six minute mark too. So we get kind of more percussive elements as we go on in the track. Yeah, I definitely, like you're saying, there's that kind of open solo section with the piano drums and the sax and there's some really nice interplay there and there's some cool references back to the melody which I like as well so that part definitely does feel very musical and very jazz um and you know jazz oriented which is nice and yeah the melody kind of ends at uh the six minute mark and it turns into a cadenza with the you know the piano and the percussion and I, I like this ending a lot. It seems like it just uh, it feels very enlightened and spiritual to me, and it feels like it fits the theme of the album well. Yeah, and I also like what the flute is doing. Um, it's kind of floating on top uh, freely over top with longer notes from the sax as well. So the horns are really adding a lot here to the ending to change the direction of the song that's going to lead into the last track on the album called Lift. And there's also a lot of cool piano sweeps as well that move dynamically with a lot of trills um, at different parts of the piano. Did you like what the piano was doing there? Yeah, yeah, for sure. I like pretty much this entire ending. It feels like it does. It feels very enlightened to me. It feels very uplifting and it, it just makes sense in the album. And so, I yeah, I enjoyed this that entire track and definitely the ending of it, it makes makes a lot of sense to me. Now it kind of transitions to something where we have a lot of different thoughts about. <laughs> um, this is the, yeah, this is the last track on the album. It's entitled Lift. And just so you know, it's 26 minutes long. So it's half of the entire album. And yeah. I, I want to just let, like, I'm not, we don't both need to talk about all 26 minutes. So I'll let you talk about you know, most of it and I'll kind of interject as I want to. Um, but there is a lot to talk about with this and this might, we might, this is the one where we might kind of let loose on, on what we feel about, about this. So Max, why don't you start us out? Well, uh, there, yeah, again, there's a lot to say. It is 26 minutes long. You have to get strapped in. If you want to listen all the way through this last track, um, it don't starts- make lunch plans. Don't make reservations. <laughs> Cut out your afternoon if you want to listen to this track and really listen in for what's going on musically um, because I, I don't know. I, I think you can get a lot of what's going on from the first two minutes and then it's <laughs> the same thing 
which we'll get into. But, you know, to, to really just go over how the track, you know, reveals itself, it starts with the same feel as the ending of the previous track, Lighthouse, and then it almost immediately gets very dark, and there's some screeching sounds and some wails from the saxophone. So it's just taking an immediate turn, 180-degree turn, towards a different feel and timbre overall. Yeah, it starts out, it almost sounds like something from a horror film, and it it's like not super tonally centered and it to me it feels like it has a connection to a darker spiritual side um so that's what i'm getting on this one but yeah it almost sounds like you could put it in the background of a horror film and it would fit right in yeah that's a good point um the piano and the saxophone are kind of going off while the drums seem to almost have a steady beat a little bit and then uh Kwiku eventually just lays out and he comes back in later and I questioned that moment because uh, I was kind of digging what he was playing where he comes in with a steady beat, almost a steady beat, and then he just kind of stops. And I, I don't understand. Well, why didn't we do something with that? It seems like we're all kind of just collectively improvising at that moment. Um, I don't know. I, I, I didn't understand that. Did you hear that moment? Yeah, I did hear that. And there are just some things in this that confuse me. The first few minutes of this song seems to be just the same kind of thing for like two and a half minutes until there's kind of a dot a, a dynamic build upward but it's still kind of the same feeling there's some like there's some cool like piano upward movement with like both hands um but yeah it's it's it feels pretty much like the same kind of thing for the first few minutes of the song yeah, it's a lot of just free jazz, collective improv going on. I do uh, kind of appreciate some of the things Emmanuel Wilkins is doing. He has some nice false fingering trills right around the 230 mark, very short staccato phrases. Um, and then he, he uses a lot of just endless 16th note ideas just up and down the horn. Definitely free jazz to me. There's some almost animalistic extended saxophone sounds at the 325 mark. And I've heard kind of more straight-ahead players like James Carter use similar sounds. But to me, when James Carter does it, it's it's still very swinging. And here it just seems just more free and an emphasis on, on the sound and the spirituality and where you want to go with that sound rather than how well does that sound um, build the swing or fit into the pocket. Yeah, and so at 408, right after this that Max is talking about, it's kind of the first semblance of any kind of groove or rhythm from the rhythm section. Um, and it's mostly, or any semblance of time, really, it's mostly highlighted by um, kind of up and down bouncing bass lines. Uh, so that's kind of the first time that we start to get any kind of groove feeling or rhythm feeling in the song. Um, and then <laughs> I, it's hard to really write. Like my, I put thought six minutes in has been the same free jazz collective improv feel this entire time but hasn't moved much or done musically dynamic or dynamically in my opinion so that was six minutes in i thought i'd just give a little uh six minute in thought that's where i was feeling uh six minutes in as that i'd listened to six minutes of basically the same thing yeah i will say it is kind of interesting around the five minute mark the saxophone drops out and it's just piano binging with the drums going on um playing freely yet mostly kind of intentionally but you're right the first six minutes are all kind of the same thing going on and and it's more of that later on too 
when the sax comes back in after that six minute mark, he uses kind of extended screeching sounds. Um, and then he gets a little lighter and the sax comes in with kind of held out growling, flutter tonguing low notes. Um, those were kind of interesting to me. Did yeah. that come out to you? Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that. Um, at, se- at the seven minute mark, so a minute after my six minute uh, recap, um, <laughs> <laughs> there is a change of feel, which is good. I've been waiting for something to change in the song. So there is a change in feel. And there's, yeah, these low droning notes by the sax and the pianos improvising over top. And they almost sound like kind of like pedal tone techniques, Max. Can you describe like what's going on? Because, I mean, I understand like pedal tones on a brass instrument or something like that, but there's like this low, it almost feels like he's getting multiple, like like almost undertones, if you, you know, like um, out of the saxophone. What's, you know, what is he doing there? Well, there's a couple of things he could be doing. I don't know exactly what he's doing, but some things come to my mind. Number one, he could just be flutter-tonguing or growling. So flutter-tonguing is when you're, you know, in the Spanish language, you have the rolling R. I can't really do it. But you do that while blowing into the mouthpiece and making the the sound on the saxophone, and that creates a a kind of a a similar effect. and then the other version is growling, where you're literally going, and you're grunting. At the same time, you're blowing air through the mouthpiece of the saxophone, and you kind of create that growling kind of uh, 50s rock and roll tenor sax sound. Although jazz greats like Illinois Jaquette and Ben Webster were awesome at it too, and there's, there's a, a history of it being used by jazz saxophone players, both growling and flutter-tonguing. But um, that's something that will come out more in the extreme registers of the horn. So because he's really low and he's playing low notes on the alto, and if you growl on those lower notes, you can get that kind of almost pedal tone sound. Yeah. So to me, yeah, to me, that's probably what he's doing. Another, another thing that comes to my mind is, is playing overtones mm-hmm. and, you know, um, kind of mixing in fingerings of different notes on top of the the low note fingerings that you're doing, which can affect the tone of the instrument and the sound of the note you're making on the saxophone. And so it, it's either, you know, one of those three things or a combination of a couple of those things. Um, and there's just a lot of extended kind of sounds you can make with different stuff you may do with your embouchure in addition um, to those things when you're around the mouthpiece, when your lips are around the mouthpiece and, and the way you use your tongue or, or um, just a lot of different things you could be using. It's probably something with the fingers, probably something with flutter tonguing or growling or something with overtones. Yeah. Or a mix of, yeah, I definitely, that's what I was getting at is, yeah, I kind of felt like there was some use of overtones because it almost felt like he was getting multiple tones out at the same time, which you can get from playing certain instruments. There are different techniques to where you can play one note and get another note to come through on the instrument at the same time. So that's kind of what I was getting um, was it felt like he was playing one note, but you could hear the the overtones below, you know, what um, he was playing. So kind of like an almost pedal tone beneath it, which was super interesting. I thought this, I was definitely my interest for maybe the first time in seven minutes was like actually really peaked. And I was really intrigued by what Emmanuel Wilkins was doing there. Yeah. And I, I, he kind of goes in, in, in that vein for, for a while longer. Although I wish he did more with those kind of lower, uh, overtones. Um, 
that that is a really interesting moment. And then everything starts to shift slightly at the nine minute mark. The drums enter in with kind of more frequent, busier playing. And the piano uses higher notes in his range, um, which brings a different dynamic to everything that's going on. And later on, the 10 to 11 minute mark, the saxophone gets busier, becomes more in the forefront of everything. There's some single moving lines, lots of chromatic movement at large intervals. Some moments in there, what Emmanuel was playing kind of reminded me of a wasp moving around you. (laughs) Um, And just the different fast movements that insects make. I I don't know. something, Something reminiscent of that came out to me there. I don't know. Yeah, I definitely, I listened for that and I definitely heard what you're talking about. And I think, yeah, when you're doing this kind of avant-garde collective improv, guys will kind of pick at different ideas or sounds and, you know, they might be playing something that sounds like a circus or something, you know. So guys are just, you know, so I definitely see what you're saying there and that interpretation. Um, At this point, I'm at my uh, 13-minute mark recap and... um, I just put, <laughs> what's the update <laughs> I put I don't feel like I really need to talk a lot more about what is happening as though I don't feel like it's changed a whole lot uh it's this avant-garde collective improv that seems pretty similar in minute 13 as it was in minute two keep in mind we're only halfway through the whole track yeah um, so <laughs> that's my halfway that's my <laughs> midpoint like intermission those are my thoughts was in minute 13. I don't feel like I have a whole lot to add from what I had in minute two. I do appreciate Max noting the different things that the players are doing. um, But it does seem like they're just kind of trading back and forth. Someone's playing over top. The next person's playing over top. Um, So to me, minute 13, minute two, not a whole lot has changed. We're kind of still doing the same thing. I think you're right. And that keeps going for another about, I don't know, five minutes or so. And the saxophone comes in and out a bunch. And and during those out moments, other instruments are featured a little bit more like the piano. Um, did you notice that? What were you thinking? There is actually one part that caught my attention. Attention. Um, it seems like after I do these little recaps, they kind of bring me back in a little bit. So after that six minute recap at seven minutes, there was some interesting stuff at four, 14 15 14 minutes and 15 seconds in the song um don't know how often i'll say that uh i actually there was something that caught my my um attention oh and one thing i did want to say is there is some variation from the techniques in each player like it's not just exactly the same thing for 13 minutes that was part of my 13 minute recap they do all kind of vary what they're doing and the techniques that they're playing in but overall the feeling in 13 to 2 doesn't change a lot but at 14 15 there's the sax emmanuel wilkins kind of plays an idea and they all catch on to it and they kind of run with it for 30 seconds and i'm just like this moment just stuck out to me because after 14 minutes of listening to this there was like actually something that felt like it meant something to me and so it was just in such contrast to like this continuing free soloing commotion of the 14 minutes prior so it was like I stuck out like a sore thumb. I was like, Oh my gosh. Like they're playing something that like feels communicated. And you know, unfortunately that was 14 minutes too late. Yeah. I, I, I agree that moment. Well, not 14 minutes, but you know, it was probably seven to nine minutes too late. Um, because that could have happened much sooner. And you're right. That was a very interesting moment because they play back and forth, um, off 
off of that idea for your right the next half minute or so. And it's just, I don't hate what they're doing on the song. It's just, it feels like there's so much, fil- like it just goes on for 26 minutes. And it feels like you shouldn't have to wait seven minutes to get something else that you're interested by. It feels, it feels like that's just, there's a lot of stuff in there and it, it's hard to keep people's attention for that long. And if I weren't listening to this because I was listening to the whole whole album front and back, I don't know if I would get through this track, honestly, if it weren't for, you know, wanting to, to listen to this and analyze it, but let's, let's keep moving on Max. What's uh, you know? Yeah. I was going to say something does different happen. Something different happens uh, around the 1850 mark where everyone kind of gets softer and then the bass comes out and this is, I think really the first bass feature. I do have a, um, a few things I want to add. Okay. That, that little thing I did say, it doesn't last long as, and they are into the same thing as before. And in my opinion, I'm really starting to like, they're losing my attention. It's like hard. I'm trying to focus on paying attention at this point. Um, but there is a cool, a little bit of a piano solo feature esque section um, at 1530 to 1624 which has some like semi-interesting chordal movement and some slightly more meaningful things going on. But that's like all that caught my attention from minute 14 to minute 19, which Max is about to talk about. Well, I was just going to say, yeah, you're right. That is a little interesting. And then right at the 1630 mark, I'm thinking, is anything different going to happen? Um, so I, that was a moment for me, whereas you alluded to earlier, you had those moments right around 16 minutes. I was kind of feeling that I was like, okay, what's going to happen? Anything? Are we going to go into a song section or something? Um, but no, they, they really don't. They just kind of keep going on. And then right around that 19 minute mark, everything gets softer. And then the bass gets featured, which was a moment that stuck out to me. The drums also, uh, are reduced in what Kwiku is playing. Um, He's some. He's just kind of plays around on the snare drum, which is nice. And there's some very light piano touches that uh, the piano player is making. And there's some cool interaction between all the instruments right around the 20-minute mark. So if you're going to hone in and, and stick in and hammer it out and listen to the whole track, it kind of changes a little bit right around the 20-minute mark. Um and there's just kind of some different things going on there. Yeah, and I, there, yeah, that bass feature is nice. And it's just at this point, 19 minutes into the song, it just feels so nice to have some contrast and dynamics like change yep. in the song. Because, like Max said, at 16 minutes, it's starting to feel like like what's gonna you know is anything gonna change or is it just gonna be the same thing over and over? Um, and then one thing that I noticed is there's seemingly like a piano melody at. 20 minutes and 40 seconds and yeah. then it's just met by like random insertions by other members in the band which in my opinion don't really fit the key or the melody presented and it just kind of dissolves back into this ominous free soloing section i was thinking the same thing at 20 minutes and 40 seconds it seems like an actual song is going to be established with the piano idea but of course this is not where it's going instead we later get heavy banging and siren sounds from the saxophone oh great another moment where we're (laughs) going back to free jazz and anything happens and you know i don't understand this moment at all because we're kind of forgetting or just purposefully omitting what the piano player was adding 
to everything that was going on and maybe follow the piano player in that moment. Um, I don't know. Emmanuel Wilkins could could cop that at least rhythmically. You know, it's hard to hear that in the moment with the specific notes. But you could do something where you play around with that and and you create a melody. Why why is there this uh, obsession where we're going to have these long, drawn out free jazz moments and we're we're purposefully intentionally trying to get away from any melody that naturally arises i thought we want to have these moments where we we can have these melodies come to us and we can explore them and and improvise them together that seemed like a key moment where that could have occurred and instead they they go back to the heavy banging and the intense sounds and in this case Emmanuel does a, a lot of siren sounds, which is unrelated. I'm sorry. It's completely unrelated to what the piano player is doing at the 2040 mark. And I don't understand. Yeah, I, I agree with Max. I just feel like any point where they start to develop something that I feel like is interesting, it feels like there's this need to get back to the like complete free jazz. Everyone's playing different things at different times. There's like this every time that it feels like something is starting to develop, they cut it off and it's just back. We've got to get back to this kind of ominous free jazz, free soloing, like collective improv thing. So I definitely, I agree with Max, what Max is saying there and kind of throughout the rest of the track, it just kind of slows down and lengthens out in like the last minute and a half. And the end is just a held note by the sax. It's random piano insertions. And then, just kind of random bass plucking. And at the end, it just ends with the bass plucking. And this is, I was almost at this point mad. I said, (laughs) my note is that's really how you're going to end it. And then in all caps, after 26 minutes, 26 minutes, I listened to this and you can't even end it in the, like it just (laughs) ends in the most random way possible. Just random bass plucking. Like, I really don't understand this ending either. I I was almost mad. I was this my final thoughts. I di- I've done my recaps, my 6 minute recap, my 13 minute recap. There was no recap in between 13 minutes and the end. It just kind of I just kind of stuck it out to the end. My final thoughts after 26 minutes and 22 seconds. This is what I wrote after listening to this entire song this is how I felt. Those are 26 minutes and 22 seconds. I am not getting back. <laughs> and I, I I hate to be that harsh and critical, but it I just really I would not ever listen to this song all the way through again. It's I don't know what yeah. the point of listening to it again would be. I don't think I could get anything else from it. Here's what I'll say. There are moments, there are specific short shorter moments in Lift, the 26 minute song that we're talking about where there is great collective improvisation, Mm -hmm. free jazz improvisation. Yep. And then there are other much, much, much longer moments where it's just not done as well as I've heard it done from other players in the history of this music. And it's Uh, so repetitive. It There's so much that just feels like filler. It feels like if this song were six minutes... And all of the interesting things that happened happened in those six minutes, and there was some of that filled in between. I wouldn't have felt this way, 
But the fact that this song lasted 26 minutes and really did nothing the whole time, but kind of randomly inserted semi-interesting ideas, it just felt I, it felt like a waste of time. I, I want to say a couple of other things that um, may seem insensitive or harsh, but I'm not meaning to. I just want to be honest. And one of those things is uh, I like a lot of the different things Emmanuel Wilkins is doing on the saxophone, but some of what he's doing is getting in the way of everything else. And if we are going to collectively improvise, we should collectively improvise, which means we should be listening to the other players we are improvising with. And just like that 2040 mark where the piano is doing something melodic, you should be going melodic as well. And you don't have to do it for very long. You can do it for a short time, but we really should be doing what we're intending to do. And I just think there's a lot of this track that that doesn't happen. Um, there's a lot of nice stuff from the rhythm section. I love what the drums are doing at the 25, 25, 20 mark where he's playing around with the rim clicks. Um, but that was another moment where I said, why did you stop? Why? I thought the whole point is to be in the moment and develop what occurs and see where it goes and connect it to another idea that may happen from the previous idea. I don't understand. And I think it, it just kind of goes back to what I said earlier, but this is just a very dramatic like um instance of it because it's 26 minutes is there's just this hesitation to develop things and to yeah to do that and i just question that hesitation i want to hear you be musical i don't want to hear you present something that i'm interested in just to be like no we can't do that we have to get back to this melody or this collective improv thing so that's that's what I that's my biggest problem with this album. I like so much of what's going on, but it just feels like there's so much hesitation to let it let those things happen. And I I don't understand that. I read uh part of um the blurb about this this album on the Blue Note website and I think I've I've read a couple of interviews with Emmanuel Wilkins about what his music is all about and and what he does on this album and with you know, in his mind, in the suite, the the seventh movement called lift is supposed to be where you know they're they're letting room. They're supposed to be letting musical room for the Holy Spirit to be, uh, you know, influencing everything they're doing musically, and to be in the room with them, and and to move with the Spirit and see where the Spirit takes you. And it's it's kind of a spiritual approach, and I appreciate that, and I really dig that intention. But I don't think that's really what this track offers to me. And I think they really missed the mark on Lyft. And for that reason, it kind of ruins a lot of everything else that goes into the album. I mean, you end with this in this way with this lack of development or lack of real, I don't know, interest and and a the different approaches you're wanting to take. I just, I'm lost with this track and it kind of brings everything else down with it. Yeah. I, I had the exact same feeling. I had actually, this track made me forget about so many things that were good about this album. This track kind of made me forget about a lot of those things. And some of the really interesting things that happen in emanation and, um, fugitive, uh, ritual, say like there, it, I actually 
was like, oh, yeah, those things actually happened. Like, there were really good things. And so this track, we'll talk about it in our overall feelings, but this track just kind of left a sour taste in my mouth after, you know, like being kind of on the fence and kind of understanding what he was going for. This track just kind of really left a, a sour taste in my mouth. But let's let's go ahead and get into our our kind of our top threes, our not-so-hot tracks. Um, I think our not-so-hot tracks are probably very evident by now. Um but I'll go ahead and go first. Um, my top three, my number one is Fugitive Ritual Selah. I think it's a beautiful song. Um, I did have the thing, I, you know, the sax solo, I wish it would have been there. But I think it's very, it's very musically well written. It's very interesting. It's dynamically nice. The drums are really, really nice. Um, Sumbri is really, really good on this and really shines. So I enjoy that one. My number two uh, track is Emanation. Um, I really enjoy what's going on with Emanation as well. Um, it's just, I don't know, just it's interesting. You know, there there is some lack of development, it feels like. But there's, it's, you know, it just, it's interesting. And I think by the end, it really settles into something nice. So I really do like Emanation and the way it kind of settles in. And it kind of swings and it, it has a nice feeling to it. Um, so I enjoy that track. And then my third and final uh, top three is the tune entitled Lighthouse, which uh, features Elena Penderhughes. And I just think it's nice. It does have that free jazz element, but I think that it's done really well in that situation. So I really do like the track Lighthouse. And I think it, it does a really good job, um, you know, representing the spiritual things and the free jazz, but in a very tasteful way. And then I don't feel like I need to say much about it, but uh, Lift is my not-so-hot track for all the reasons we've kind of mentioned already. Yeah, I would concur with that. Um, my number one was Emanation, which was the first track on the album. To me, that just is the best single representation of everything that is um, intended with this album. So I just... Um, I, I just really dig what's going on with Emanation. And you do get that swing feel for that minute and a half or so, maybe even longer. So I dig the swing. I, I dig the interactions that are going on and just all the different things that they're doing with the feel and with the time signatures. It's really cool. And I, I understand why it is the first track on the album because of those things and that, you know, and it's the first and it's sweet. So I think it's a great way to start with what, you know, his, his goals are with the album. Um, the, fu the fugitive ritual Sela is my number two. I think it is, is very easy listening. I think that's probably the most accessible track to an audience, to a listener. That's really not jazz heavy in, in their, you know, their, their musical preferences, but, um, there's some cool things going on. Uh, with, with fugitive ritual Sela. And then number three is lighthouse, which to me, really came out to me because of everything that the drummer is doing, Kwiku. I, I just really dig Lighthouse. And then my not-so-hot is also Lift, which was the last track on the album, which, you know, we, we went into depth about the issues with that 26-minute long song, if you could call it that. Um, <laughs> so I, I just, you know, we've gone over it. It just kind of really... There's some great moments, but overall, it, it's just I'm, I'm missing some things from it, even though it, it gives me so many notes for 26 minutes. Um, anyway, so that's my not so hot, which, you know, you and I have 
agreed on that. So um, we're going to move on and, and we're going to go into our overall thoughts on the album. And I'll go ahead and go first. Um, I think this second Blue Note release from Emmanuel Wilkins is certainly an undertaking which deserves some appreciation. The collection of songs is meant to be seen as a big picture seven part musical journey that attempts to portray a sense of music sp moving spirituality that is obviously present amongst the players. Some musical moments tend to drag on without much development, and there are questionable arrangements at times throughout. We've touched on those moments. Drummer Kwiku shines on Lighthouse and Emanation, while the flute playing of Elena Penderhughes on Witness is another shining, very satisfying feature. So there are those moments in this album I, I really dig. Um, Wilkins delivers what he seemingly intends to deliver, yet it is not always on the money for me. His tone can occasionally be too light and wispy, while at other moments he is kind of screeching and distracting from other parts musically in certain collective improv sections. And we've definitely gone into that. Wilkins's approach is unique and certainly has a number of varying influences, likely including Ornette Coleman, maybe some Kenny Garrett, and definitely some Wayne Shorter as well. There's some neat compositional ideas that are well executed on the album, yet other parts of, of certain uh, moments of the arrangements don't come across so well. And the 26-minute lift leaves me with much more to be desired and kind of brings everything else down with it. My overall uh, rating is 5.4. I do have some more things to say about that. The, the, I will say, you know, critically, a lot of critics seem to adore these types of recordings due to their differing nature. However, some of this music just leaves me unfulfilled. I do appreciate the odes to African music and religious tradition and the intention outlined from Wilkins's effort. Yet I take umbrage with the notion that in order to perform music that emphasizes spirituality, you have to play quote unquote freely and in the way some of the music on the seventh hand is performed. I just, I don't understand this idea where if you do just a, a regular song with an actual form that somehow that means there's no Holy Spirit involved, there's no God present. Why isn't God present when we're playing a funk song? What about a great ballad ending cadenza? You're telling me there's no spirit in uh, a sunny stick cadenza? I, I, that's crazy. Or Gene Ammons when, when he's playing a ballad and, and the way he ends his phrases. There is obviously a sense of spirit in that, in my opinion. What about open solo sections that are inserted into the middle of tunes? Like we talked about with Satchmo of Pasadena, the great Barney Biggard going off on the clarinet and his interaction with Cozy Cole. Yes, it, it's kind of straight ahead jazz, but those moments are spiritual. Why isn't there a sense of spirituality present in those musical moments? And I would say that there are. This treatment of musical exploration in order to reach a higher power or the spirit realm seems overdone and slightly cliche to me. I will likely not be going back to this album anytime soon. And sorry, I, I misspoke earlier. My overall score is a five out of 10. Yeah. And I think you make some really good points there. And one thing I do, I do agree with is there's in modern jazz, there's kind of this thing and it's critically gets a lot of claim and revere is like this needing for this spiritual 
connection and making the music as spiritual as possible. And I think sometimes it does detract from the musicality of the music. And I, yeah, I, I think it's, there's more of an emphasis. And we talked about this on the spiritual aspect rather than the musical aspect. And I like what Max said there, there can be spirituality in any kind of music. And especially in jazz music, you can get it from the most swing oriented tune. There can be spiritual spirituality in that you know and in blues music there's spirituality in that it doesn't have to be presented in a way that's just you know so like it feels almost a little bit like i don't know there's like you have to do this to be spiritual like the way that emmanuel wilkins is playing or some of the induduzo makatini stuff like you have to do that kind of thing to kind of get that spiritual feeling across to people which i don't necessarily think is true and there's a element and i again i'm not trying to be insensitive there's an element of self self aggrandizement in that notion because you're saying oh what i do is connected to a higher power and if you're playing there is no greater love you're not connected to a higher power and there's no sense of god in what you're doing i just take umbrage with that i think that is and i think that is insensitive i think that is musically ignorant. I think that is spiritually ignorant. I, I I thought God is with us or should be with us all the time. And we're always present with God in those moments, no matter what we're doing, no matter what we're playing. And you can go off in a spiritual sense on a cadenza, on a solo section. You're telling me Sonny Rollins's version of Without a Song on the record, The Bridge from the early 1960s, in that, in that track, where he, they have a rubato section and there's a great kind of free uh, Sonny Rollins improvisatory section that's kind of unexpected in that tune without a song. You're telling me there's no spirit in that? There's no Holy Spirit? There's no God? I I disagree wholeheartedly. And I, I, I think it's disrespectful to the music to say that you have to play this way to be spiritual. Yeah, and I... Yeah, I, I definitely can understand what you're saying there. And I do like some of the things. Like, one thing, the tune, the late, great Pharaoh Sanders, um, the creator has a master plan. That's very spiritual, but it's also very musical. And yep. so I think there's just this push, and especially in modern jazz, towards this like just all-out spiritual kind of connection. And I, I see what you're saying there, Max. And I think there can be a way to be both, and there's spirituality in all kinds of different playing in jazz. So I, I get what you're saying there. I'm going to go ahead and, uh, and, um, do my overall thoughts and then my rating and then we can kind of wrap it up. Um, yeah. So this is Emmanuel Wilkins second blue nose feature. And it's one that comes with critical acclaim and a sense of spirituality. There are some interesting and well done aspects, um, of the album and a few players do shine throughout. Uh, but this album misses the high mark set forth by some critics, in my opinion, the compositions on the album are sometimes interesting, such as Fugitive Ritual Selah, yet this track does lack any true solo sections, but at times the album suffers from a lack of direction or musical development. I think there is a higher emphasis being placed on spirituality and the free-spirited nature of the recording than the musicality of the tunes themselves. There seems to be an innate desire in this in modern jazz landscape, especially amongst critics of the music who seem to be drawn to things that are quote unquote different or spiritual. Um, 
Giovanni Rossinello, a critic from the New York Times, said that the album was blues-based and gospel-infused, which I have extremely strong disagreements with. I would say that this music draws much more from classical elements and free jazz, avant-garde influences, and I don't get really any blues basis or really... There is, I guess, some gospel influence but not what you think of traditional like modern gospel music maybe some more hymnal stuff it leads me to question if this critic has any idea what he's talking about i just i i question i can't i didn't even read the rest of the article when i got to the the second paragraph and he said blues based and gospel infused that's just not true i mean it definitely has elements of jazz of free jazz avant-garde jazz so but with this being said, I do think there are some really nice elements on this album that are worth pointing out. Um, the players do have unique styles, which I appreciate, and uh, Kweku Sumbri and Elena Penderhughes playing stand, really stands out to me. Kweku uh, seems to find a way to make tracks that don't have a lot of development or direction more interesting, and his feel, his style, his approach is great. I applaud him for that. He seems to make things that can kind of lack direction at times be a little bit more interesting and give me something to to listen for. Emmanuel Wilkins is obviously super talented and proficient as a player. Um, the musical directive on this album just doesn't seem to do it for me. Although I will continue to check out his music because I feel like there's enough there to interest me as to what he's capable of. And I think that he is capable of, you know, I would be really interested to see him put out something more straight ahead and kind of get an idea of what, you know, what he'd do with that. Uh, my last overall thought, um, this 26-minute track lift is almost worth skipping altogether, in my opinion. I think the album would have been perfectly fine without it, and this track leaves a sour taste in my mouth, and it kind of overshadows the rest of, of the album. Uh, for that reason, um, I gave the album an overall score of a 5.7 out of 10. So uh, Max's score, 5 out of 10, and my 5.7. Our overall score is a 5.4 out of 10. In my honest opinion, I think if Lift, the song Lift, weren't on the album at all, it would have maybe got over six for us. But that song, it's hard to listen to the whole album and then do your overall thoughts. And that's the last thing on your mind, in, in my complete honest opinion. And that one song takes up half of the album, if you, you know, in, in musical. In length, yeah. In length, overall length. It's overall about 58 minutes, almost an hour. And that one song is 26 minutes, so that's that's half of the album. And um, I just think if that track was a lot shorter, or if they did different sections, or did something else with it, um, I I think you're right. Our score would would be better. And I do want to give a disclaimer. This is a cat that's on Blue Note Records, one of the one of the essential jazz record labels. Props to him. Props to what he's doing. I find his sound very unique. Um, I, I don't want to take away from that. And who are we to say certain things that we're saying, you know, without regarding the fact that he's doing great things at such a young age. And I, I, I do really respect him for that. I just don't dig musically what's going on in, in a lot of moments on this album, The Seventh Hand. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree with that sentiment. I don't think there's no 
disdain or hate or anything for any of the musicians and they're all really good i think our question is with the musical directive that this album takes that's completely you know the way i feel about and i do i do look forward to other stuff that they put out because i think he is capable of putting out music that i think i would enjoy so i'm not going to stop listening to emmanuel wilkins after this um so yeah and he's on blue note so he obviously he knows what he's doing he's got a following so yeah, um, just a little bit different. Something It's good for us to do something that doesn't speak to us because it might speak to other people, and you might have a separate opinion. This might be your favorite jazz album that's been put out all year. Um, and if it is, please explain to me why I want to know. Send us an email. Yeah, send us an email, the Jazz Jam Podcast at Gmail. I would love to know. But, you know, and I respect people's opinion. I expect um, Emmanuel Wilkins, it's his album. He, you know, but... To us, it just there are these things where it comes short of doing some things musically that we we want to hear from an album of this of this kind. So that's our overall thoughts. That's our rating. Um, let's go ahead and get into our album for next week's episode, which is a classic album. It was gonna come up at some point. It was my turn to pick an album. I waited long enough. We're gonna be doing the album entitled night train by the oscar peterson trio this one is an absolute banger it's one of the the classic jazz albums one of the best jazz piano trio albums of all time it's gonna be really i've listened to it a billion times but i'm super super excited to actually sit down and review it so yeah max i'm, I'm looking forward to next week's episode I just wanted to say I knew this album was going to come up at some point and um, I'm, it'll be a lot of fun to, to dig into this one with you. I know you're an Oscar Peterson f- fan and, and so am I. And there, he's just such an essential player and all the influences you can hear where, you know, he's obviously listened to Art Tatum. You know, obviously there's an influence from Father Hines and, and different stuff. And, and he has influenced so many other people. And there's some great records he's made, and he's made a ton of them. And Night Train is one of those essential Oscar Peterson trio records to check out. So there's a lot to talk about, and I'm looking forward to that one. Yeah, out of the hundreds of records that he recorded, this might be his best work. So that's saying a lot coming from um, possibly the greatest jazz pianist of all time. So super, super excited to get into this one. Um, Just a few things before we... We sign off. I want to say we do have an Instagram um, at the Jazz Jam Podcast. Follow us there. We have a website. Everything's linked in the show notes. So if you want a link to anything, you can get to anything through our website. Um, yeah, make sure to you know follow us on Instagram and keep up with us. And you know if you feel like reaching out to us and any kind of review or anything, we'd love to hear that. So. A great place to do that is the Jazz Jam Podcast at Gmail as well. And so, yeah, I, I want to thank everyone for listening. I had a lot of fun actually listening to this record. It's really cool to listen to some things that are different and some new cats that are putting out new music. So I did enjoy listening to this record. And, yeah, I look forward to next week's episode. And for Max Levy, I am Dwayne Gunnels, and this has been an episode of the Jazz Jam Podcast. <laughs>